Hi, Alexia. I wondered if you might be interested in a story about how Building Trade Association NZ Certified Builders is taking action to encourage more women to take up a carpentry apprenticeship. That pitch landed in my inbox from an organisation that knows I have an interest in trades training. But I've done stories like this so many times before. Lifting up women, showcasing female success, highlighting achievements and encouraging them to break into traditionally male spaces. Is it time to stop writing about the firsts? When will all of this be normal? It would be great if we didn't have to write about all these firsts, but the reality is is that we are and, and people enjoy them. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think what you're up against in many respects is that the media love a story about firsts because news is about the novel, the new, the first things to happen. Um, and perhaps unfortunately in the gender environment, that means we do have this emphasis on the first women to do particular things. Hi, I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, I'm talking to women in academic journalism, sports reporting and construction to look at how far we've come and how far we have to go. First, let's get back to that email, which was from New Zealand Certified Builders, about their efforts to encourage more women into the industry. There's that expression that they used for a while for women's sports, and it's, uh, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that's it. Niamh Barrow is a qualified builder, runs her own company, Windy City Builders, and is on the board of NZ Certified Builders. The organisation's launching a programme designed to provide wraparound support to apprentices and their employers, which includes matching female trades trainees up with mentors. It comes at a time when the industry is trying to widen its recruiting pool, and women are a largely untapped resource. At the moment, I suppose, all we can really do is just show that it's possible. We need to be able to show images of women on sites and we need to normalise that presence so it's not the main focus of anything. It's just, it's totally normal to have a woman in the background on a building site with a tool belt on and she's not the builder's wife and she's not the client. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think I think it's a battle that every institution in the industry is focusing on now because, you know, diversity is becoming a, a much more important part of, of the industry. And they're all trying to focus on it. And I know that um, BCITO, for instance, or some of those other um, Tipukanga institutions are advertising directly to girls and women and are making a huge effort to attract girls and women. And I think that's where we need to start. So what is the value of visibility then? We have to show girls that this is a viable career option. We have to show their parents that it's a viable career option. And we have to normalise the presence of women on site so that employers and colleagues value women on site. Is that a big barrier, that employers still have that perception that they would rather not have a woman on site? Unfortunately, it is 100% a barrier, yeah. My personal experience has been really good. You know, everybody I meet and everybody I've encountered has mostly been very welcoming, open-armed, you know, there's no issue with me being on site. But then, of course, I am already on site. So there's no there's no question that my place is there because I'm, I'm there. But I've heard employers choosing not to hire women, and these are conversations I've had, this is not hearsay, 
because, you know, the and the quote is she was too pretty or she'll distract the boys. Or I've heard of one employer who was ready to hire a girl and brought it to his team just to check in with his team. And his team said no. So some of the barriers are things like for the team, we'd have to keep the toilet so clean or I don't want any trouble with the husband or it'd be like having my wife on site, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm, pretty Stone Age stuff, though, isn't it? Pretty Stone Age stuff, which which I always find surprising because I always assume the best of people. And so that just it always shocks me. But but that's just a fear. It's Stone Age stuff, but it's just a fear. And once you get past that fear, what you actually find is that men enjoy having women on site because they they take away that pressure of that macho competitiveness that men can sometimes fall into when they're only men. And it turns out that they don't like it either. They prefer a calmer, hmm. less competitive, less macho environment for themselves. It works for them as well. You know, it's a great advantage. I mean, we have a huge deficit of good workers. So why would we deny ourselves half of the population just because of Stone Age ideas, like you say? So if I write stories about, um, you know, Jane down the road, who's a, a builder, we, we have a picture in the paper, for example, we have her voice on the radio. Um, she's televised doing the job. How does that help this sort of quest to get more women involved in the industry? How does it help? Well, it I think it just it just normalizes it, right? I mean, there's there are barriers to to women coming on site, and it's not it's not the women; it's the people around the women. I mean, it is of course. Of course, you need you need the woman to be interested, yeah. right? You need Jane to be interested in joining the the um, the industry. But it's it's Jane's parents, and it's Jane's husband, and it's Jane's um, friends and family and the society around her that'll say, no, you can't, you mustn't, that's not for you. And that's what we need to start changing. And I think the more we show the Janes of this world being successful, not being sexually harassed, not having to fight over toilets, not te saying how hard it is or how terrible it is to be around boys all the time, none of that. If you send the message that it's, it is fun, and it's rewarding and it's fulfilling and it's um, important and it's for you, mm. then I think that's how we that's how we convince all those other people around Jane and Jane that it's OK, that it is a place that she's allowed to be. And you would think that with women making up 14% of the construction industry, we are partway there. But Nev scoffs at that figure saying it includes office support staff and other roles, and the number of women on the tools is more like 3%. I'm sure that women truck drivers or sports professionals or men who want to be preschool teachers, they face the same kind of stereotypes. That's where it becomes not a question of getting Jane to enter the industry. It's about getting society to accept that actually we're just people and people can do what people do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it is just about getting society to accept diversity, which is, you know, that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a bigger battle, isn't it? That battle is largely fought through the media. So let's look at where we are there. Associate Professor of Communication at Massey University, Susan Fountain, keeps a close eye on how women are portrayed in the news. 
I guess, and I, I hope and I really like to think that the media is starting to normalise more um, the achievements of women. And I think that we've particularly seen that in politics. I think back to when we had Jenny Shipley and Helen Clark leading the two major parties, like that was a big deal. Um, there was a lot of gendered kind of framing around that. But then we also got quite used to it. And there was um, payoffs in terms of women's visibility in the media. And then, of course, we went back to having male leaders. Jacinda Ardern came back in. And then we had, again, this kind of flurry of interest in female leaders and the firsts um, that she represented. So I don't think that the progress is always linear, but I do feel like there are moves um, towards normalisation of some of those achievements. I did a little bit of a search to see how many news stories there have been recently that feature the words first and woman. And, you know, it just even in the past month in New Zealand media, um, there's been some stories about female first. So the first woman to judge an island championships in the dog trials. Um, <laughs> that was a first that was reported by the ODT. Um, the New Zealand Herald has reported a, a first story about the new Becca Group CEO, and she's the first woman CEO that they've had and also the first non-engineer that they've had. So again, the first angle, the first female angle. But my favourite one was a stuff story about the first woman in four years to take part in Bathurst racing. Oh, okay. But they are also easy stories to tell, aren't they? Mm. And I I think that the, I get the sense from you that you're kind of feeling like these stories are stories that you've been telling for many years and they're starting to feel a little bit predictable and maybe they're not, you don't have a strong sense that they're achieving broader change. I guess what I'm questioning is representation, you know, presenting a picture that some women can look up to, girls can aim for, versus normalisation, that we shouldn't be pointing out that, hey, this woman is not ordinary. She's, you know, out of the ordinary. She's an exception. How much damage could we do by perpetuating those series of firsts stories? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I mean, the idea that something happens, that it's kind of unusual and different and that this person is extraordinary. I mean, I think that does risk, you know, that people won't relate to it, that they'll see that this person is kind of a, a superwoman and therefore her achievements are not relatable to me. Mm. And the risk of that is that people will simply turn away or, or not be engaged or they won't be motivated by that. You know, they'll find it a little bit too intimidating. But I'm not sure that it would actively harm the debate. I, I feel like there is still, I mean, there's pretty good evidence that when you're trying to change or influence people's beliefs about non-stereotypical behaviours, and this is particularly kind of in the career literature, that if you have women who are exposed or young people or adolescents, but also people already in careers, if they're exposed to female role models who are somehow relatable to them, that that can still be impactful. And obviously not every female role model that any of us are exposed to is going to be relatable to us. So I think it does put the onus on having a real range of and a diversity of role models so that if these role model stories continue to be told, there's a greater chance that at least some of them will connect with at least some of the 
viewers or audience because they'll find something in that particular person um, that they find relatable and inspirational and which may change or at least in the short term change some of their beliefs about stereotypical women's careers mm. um, and maybe also change their behaviours and their choices that they make um, about what sort of careers or industries that they might go into. But we're short of nurses too and there's only 9% male nurses. Why don't we have the same push to get men into nursing? That's a very good question, isn't it? I mean, the other thing that's interesting about nursing that I've noticed over the years is that quite a few of the spokespeople for nursing and nursing organisations um, can be men as well. Mm. So there's sometimes interesting um, to see that um, play out as well. But you're right. I mean, if we're going to think about the things that the media can do to change stereotypes or um, connect with audiences and viewers in different ways, then you know we do also have to think about yeah, the dynamics of gender as they impact on men and transgender as well as women. Mm-hmm. And I guess it included that, you know, Māori and Pacifica. Yeah. Yes, and I think that's kind of comes back to that thing about how a role model is only going to be influential, that this is what the research suggests to us, that the role model has a better chance of being influential if they are somehow relatable to the person who's you know, seeing them. If we just serve up the same sort of role models over and over again and that they're, you know, white blonde women, for instance, then we're not going to necessarily be reaching the other people who we might be trying to um, impact their behaviour. The good news is that the gender balance of the people telling the stories is changing. The most recent survey of journalists, which was done, led by one of my colleagues, um, James Hollings, and published last year, suggests that in fact there's now no significant difference um, between the ranks of male and female journalists and also the pay rates, which is, you know, quite a fantastic outcome and makes me potentially a little bit more optimistic about the ability that maybe women might have to change some of the narratives around gender in the media. One organisation that's spent the last five years trying to change the narrative is Newsroom's Locker Room, which is exclusively about women in sport. It was started to plug a gap in sports reporting, stories that at the time weren't making it to mainstream sports pages. Last March, a survey of nearly 70,000 online sports stories from New Zealand's major news organisations over the past three years revealed that men's rugby gets more news coverage than every women's sport combined. And another startling stat was that netball accounted for 80% of the women's sports coverage, but that's only 2% of the overall sports news. This is what gets me. If you're a sports fan, you're a sports fan, and it shouldn't matter who's playing. Then along came a trio of World Cups on home soil. It was a triumph, I reckon. Not just for women's sport, but sport in general. No one could deny the fitness, the physicality, the skill the passion, the absolute spectacle that these women gave so many of us around the world. Regardless of whether they're men or women, and I think that's the really exciting outcome from a lot of the conversations and legacy outcomes of this event is that we can start moving beyond gender comparisons, actually just start appreciating them as amazing events in their own right. Former Olympian heptathlete Sarah Cowley-Ross has been writing for Locker Room virtually from the start and has seen a real shift in the portrayal of women's sport and female athletes over the three Women's World Cups held in New Zealand. It's been about the momentum built through these three World Cups that we've seen this 
shift of the dial and real appreciation of the talent of the athletes, of the footballers, and how that then uh, created other conversations uh, outside of sport. What kind of conversations? Well, pay equity around, you know, you've got a great example with the USA women's team and their pay equity agreement in 2022, how that then has then been, I guess, a catalyst for other industries to then have those same conversations, to have that courage to speak up against the powers that be, to fight for equity in, in other fields. So your children now will be of the mindset that a sporting event's a sporting event, and, and we shouldn't think lesser of it because it just involves women. Is this a generational shift? Well, I think it is, but I have to keep in mind that they have parents who use language which reinforces that. And so if the people around that environment, around the children, are not reinforcing that, uh, they are not hearing, you know, look at Ruby Tui's skill on the wing, look at how amazing Ruahae Demant is at, at being a first five, controlling the play, you know, controlling the cutter. Look at that cross that Jackie hands it uh, to Hannah Wilkinson. That's nicely done. Hand is off after it. Wilkinson's in the middle. Wilkinson! The language around it matters for the generations to come. So uh, we have to be realistic. But what we are seeing is a shift, and it's about the bandwagon, really, about people jumping on because they don't want to miss out. And if we have more allies, more people seeing women's sport for sport, then the faster that generational shift will come. But I think it will will take time. When we, a time when we don't say pretty good for a girl. Pretty good for a girl, eh? Hey? <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the ad for Le Bleus where they, they AI'd the, the players? Well, this has got soccer fans buzzing around the world. A hype video celebrating France's national men's soccer team making spectacular plays. Or is it? What we do think we are seeing in this viral video is the French men's team. And then halfway through the video, it stops and the visual effects that have been applied are removed. And in fact, it was visually engineered to have the men's names on the back of the shirts and the men's heads on those uh, bodies. And we do see when the VFX are removed, it is in fact the elite French women's team. Spectacular plays, amazing headers, crosses, passes, and those Thunderbolt goals as well, just showing uh, how exciting and impressive the elite level of French football can be when the women are playing, just as exciting as when the men are playing. That was so amazing, and I've had so many people talk to me about that ad, which was so brilliantly done. Um, Locker Room is all about women, only about women. And you have plenty to write about. Do you imagine a time when you won't have to fill this news gap? There has been such a a hole that there's so many stories to tell and I don't think there's ever going to be a shortage of of amazing stories because everyone has a story to tell. And everyone, you know, regardless if you're a man or a woman, you know, everyone has a story to tell and and a unique story at that. But I know Locker Room was kind of formed because mainstream media was ignoring these stories. When are we going to get to the stage where you're actually competing with traditional established news sources for the same stories, that they want to write the stories that you're writing now? 
I think they, at the heart of it, they do want to. Um, again, I'm an eternal optimist. And so that's why major mainstream websites like Stuff took our content. And now we have a relationship with the New Zealand Herald who, who takes our content. But how long will it be? Uh, I'm not sure. But all I know is that Locker Room exists to tell the stories that would not have been told otherwise. Yeah. And I think that if we keep pushing and putting pressure on these traditional mainstream media outlets, eventually, like you could not turn your back and not notice what's going on with the FIFA World Women's World Cup. You know, you could not turn your back from the, the Rugby World Cup last year. So I think the dial is shifting, but will we ever, you know, crack into I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the answer to that. <laughs> is, is, is the lack of female sports journalists in New Zealand worrying? I, I think it is because you. it's a different voice. And I think that, you know, we've got to think about barriers to the overall coverage of women and girls in sport and whether the lack of female voices in, in journalism contributes to that. And, you know, I personally think it does uh, because naturally you want to tell stories you have interest in or you, you're curious about. And so I think that that's a real concern, but also a great opportunity as well for, for women to step into this space. World surveys on, you know, the coverage of women's sport do put us on top of the pile, but it's still only about a quarter of what men get. Now, should we be happy at the strides we're making or unhappy at the slow progress? I think that you should always celebrate progress, no matter how glacial it appears to be. Um, But should we be happy? No, we shouldn't, because we've got more strides to make. Uh, Yes, New Zealand is doing a great job, and I acknowledge all the people that have created this increase to get to 26% of coverage of women and girls in sport and mainstream media, but we should not be creating a ceiling for ourselves and that because it is good globally. Um, There's lots more room for people to be able to be seen. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The details supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benge and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. And thanks to Neave Barrow, Susan Fountain and Sarah Cowley-Ross. Ka kite anō.